Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Today's guest is David Horkin, and David is a prolific racer, an International Sea Kayak Guide Association advanced guide, and a current and former speed record holder on a number of objectives. And today, David joins us from his home on the northwest coast of Ireland, and we're going to talk with David about the Skelligs on the west coast and his crossing of the Irish Sea at night. And we've even got some Star Wars trivia to throw in there for you. So sit back and enjoy today's episode with David Horgan. Hi, David. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, how you doing, John? Good to be with you. So, David, tell us a little bit about how you got started paddling. Um, well, I... I got started quite young luckily enough my um, cousins were quite big into canoe polo so I remember eagerly awaiting uh, reaching the age of 12 so I could join the local canoe club and uh, start paddling so I live quite close to a river called called the Moy River, Moy river which um, flows through my town here in, in Ireland and I started paddling out there at the age of 12 and I remember learning how to platter roll and all these types of things on the river and um progressed into playing a lot of canoe polo and uh, back then we we used to when days when there was no um, rivers to run or um, surf to play on we would uh, do a little bit of sea kayaking in our river boats it was all about just uh, plenty of water time and variety and it was a good uh, good learning ground beautiful so canoe polo is that a that, that's not as prevalent here in the US is it uh, is it really really big in the Ireland and the UK um probably um it might confuse your listeners though because in ireland and the uk we call kayaking canoeing quite a lot so okay it may in fact be known as kayak polo in the uk or in the us so it's um it's basically like basketball in kayaks on the water where you're allowed to push people over and do all sorts of mad things um uh, but it's a great foundation sport in terms of when you're a kid for learning the skills you need as a kayaker because if you just throw a ball for a kid, they don't think about all the things they have to do to get the ball. They just go after it. It brings out very competitive streaks in the most mellow people turn into different people when they, when they play a canoe polo. Yeah, it was a great... Uh, it was quite very popular in Ireland back then. And my club in particular in Balna was very, uh, very uh, strong club for canoe polo. So a lot of the older guys around us played a lot. So that yeah. sort of directed us. So it is an it is a niche sport here. I have seen it uh, in, mm-hmm. in some small circles, but it's just not something that's widely played. And but you're right; it's definitely a a skill builder for sure. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's a great foundation for going into different stuff. And you have to learn to roll, which if you do when you're very young, makes it a lot easier when you're older. Certainly does. So, David, you've got lots of fun adventures, and we'll talk about a few of those today, but one recent trip has, has caught my attention personally, and it's a, a short trip, but interesting nonetheless. So can you tell us a little bit about your recent paddle to the stunningly beautiful and historic Skelligs, and what was that like? We are fortunate in the west coast of Ireland to have some incredible coastline, and a lot of it, which is, um, I suppose, punctuated by the Atlantic and its ferocity all winter and a lot of the summer. But a lot of it has been carved out with uh, magnificent islands and these outcrops. So the Skelligs are two rocky outcrops that stand about 15 kilometers or maybe 10 miles off the County Curry coast in the southwest of Ireland. They are they stand quite majestically out there, 
can be seen from from shore they were inhabited i don't actually know exactly how long ago a couple hundred years ago by monks who built monasteries out there and i believe they went there to serve their penance and to pray and things like that so they've built these small um beehive structures out of stone out there and these huge step steps to get up these very steep sort of rocky outcrops um it's quite incredible to see it so it's been um i suppose it's, it's probably the number one paddle for any sea kayaker in ireland and probably further afield i would imagine so getting the opportunity to go out there is it's it's a rare treat so myself and two of my paddling friends ali donald and shane young um, who we might will probably come back to later uh, we had a plan for a crossing this summer which um the weather didn't look favorable for for the crossing so we we took the advantage of uh of the quite settled conditions and we decided to go for the skelligs i had never been out there and uh, neither had shane i and ali had been there before so uh we drove to curry the night before it was quite a long drive from where i live um for maybe five hours and um we camped, slept in our cars and vans um, at, at a pier at the launch site the night before. And it, I remember waking up in the morning and it was pouring rain and visibility was really bad. And we couldn't even see the end of the, the, end of the pier. And we thought maybe, maybe this might be a great idea or we, we might paddle out and see nothing. But we proceeded to get ready and as we were, it started to clear and there was some divers getting ready to go out. And by the time we'd paddled out to, to the open water, it was we could see perfect visibility and oily seas. It was amazingly flat calm. It's a significant paddle out because it's 15 kilometers, 10 miles. You may or may not be able to land. So you need to be prepared to be able to spend the whole day in your boat or at least 20 miles or 30 kilometers of paddling. Luckily for us, when we got there, we were able to to land um, because the swell was very small and there was three of us so we could manage to get our composite boats up on the the landing deck without without doing any damage to them and there was basically no swell so the first island you come to is skellig uh, little skellig it's known as, known as and there's a the largest or one of the largest colonies of gannets in the world are on it so the smell is um noticeable um and it's only when you're there a couple of minutes you start to realize actually there's thousands of birds flying over my head i should probably keep my spray deck closed and if i'm looking up my mouth closed (laughs) (laughs) so it's quite a it's quite a sight seeing this island and you get quite excited on the way out you start taking pictures but the pictures will never can never do it the justice it deserves to see it in real life so yeah, um, you have skellig, uh, little skellig on the way out, uh, so that's covered in birds. And then the second island is bigger, it's called Skellig Michael. And that's where the, the monastery is, or the beehive huts. It, there is a visitor centre there, and there's boats that go out there. With I think, I, I'm not sure how many people are allowed to land on there, but it has been closed actually this year because of um, events that have been going on. And, you know, there's stone steps, is that right? So there's like 670 stone steps that lead from the uh, from the landing there up to the top? Yes, so there's a, a modern landing state platform and then there's a pathway that starts, zigzags up this um, very steep island. And um, yeah, there's these huge flagstones that have been laid a couple hundred years. And yeah, you had the exact number, 600 and what is it? 
40 something steps uh, um, 670 i think yeah six 670 steps that lead you up to the to this area where they have built these huts and they had a garden and like it's it, they they grew vegetables there and stuff like that and it is quite astonishing the steps how steep it is and i'm still amazed at how exposed it is now even for visitors like it's it's quite impressive that you can still do it but there's actually two other sets of steps that are not open to or haven't been open to anyone in, since the place was inhabited. They are looking down at them or looking up at them. It is a frightening view. Um, how they managed to build them and how they went up and down them was incredible. Yeah, I will definitely. Uh, I, I know you wrote a story on this, and I'll and make sure I put that in the uh, links to the or in the show note links, so people can read about that as well. And I'll I'll find some history on the uh, on the Skelligs. It certainly is a fascinating place, and from from land, it's a, from the mainland. It's amazingly beautiful, and I can only imagine what it looks like and uh, what it's like to be on there as well. Absolutely, and I, I suppose um, I'm not a big movie man myself, but some of your listeners might be Star Wars fans and might be uh, might have actually seen them in the movie. Yeah, that's uh, I know most of the world will, will recognize Skellig, Skellig Michael from uh, Star Wars: A Force Awakens. So I'm going to shift gears just a little bit and let's head across to the East Coast. Actually, before that, um, you mentioned a crossing just a minute ago that you were considering doing a crossing. I'm interested mm. in sharing what that uh, proposed crossing was. Well, yeah, it was um, it was another crossing of the Irish Sea. Um, this time, it was to be a crossing from Dublin to Holyhead, so the 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 central crossing of the Irish Sea, and one of the longest. It stands at about a hundred kilometers or sixty-two miles straight line. We were looking at doing that this year. I sh- well, it depends what you what you. I sh- probably shouldn't wish for conditions other than we had, but. We decided to go to the Skelligs because the conditions were too flat for the crossing, um, <laughs> which was an unusual um, reason. But we had we were looking for maybe a tailwind of probably a force three or something like that, maybe a force four, and it wasn't offering that. So we decided to to take the opportunity to take the Skelligs because it's um, bang for your buck. It's um, it's a super paddle. Well, it's definitely one on my uh, on my list, and like you said, it's uh, not one that's often conquered. I mean, you live there, and, and this was the first time. So, in terms of uh, in terms of crossings, now you did a, a big night paddle a few years ago, crossing the Irish Sea. It wasn't the uh, um, the Dublin to Holyhead, but uh, another one in the South Channel. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's um, the South Southern Crossing, or it's, it's George's Channel, it's known as, um, and that it goes from from south eastern ireland um county wexford to sort of southwest wales to rams or uh, pembrokeshire in wales so both routes actually all the all the i suppose paddling routes follow the same sort of routes as the ferries so you have this george's channel then you have hollyhead and then at the north channel up the top to scotland so tell us a little bit about how that particular paddle came about the south or the George's Channel crossing was interesting because uh, it was about I think it was March or April. I was going to a symposium, and myself and Ali decided to car share Ali Donald, and we were chatting on the way, and he mentioned that um, himself and Shane Young were considering doing a crossing together, and I was of course as soon as I heard that I was like, tell me more. I'm I'm sure I'll be I'll be interested. We started chatting about it and decided I was I was I was in from the get-go so we discussed some I suppose things I had thought about for crossings and 
or for te- suppose tactics for paddling in a group um, on these sort of things or exp- even on an expedition and uh, uh, then we decided we'd set up a WhatsApp group and we'd uh, pick a date so we just picked a date uh, that we were all free in June uh, if I remember rightly it was around the 26th of June and just hope for the best with the weather so we made some plans we all done our own training and I recall that year I done a devices to Westminster race. I think Shane and, and Ali could have done one that year as well. If not, they were definitely training. So we were all we were all coming into it quite fit, uh, or coming into the summer quite fit. And fast forward anyways to June. And usually in Ireland, the problem with the weather is that it's going to be too windy or too, too big a swell or something like that. But in actual fact, we were in the middle of a huge heat wave in Ireland. And... And we'd already had a week or two of solid high 20s weather in centigrade. And when we when we met up on the on the day to go to to drive down to our starting point in Ross Lear, it was it was a scorcher. And we were as we were driving to the to Ross Lear, we were starting to have a lot of um, a lot of doubts about about paddling out into this into the Irish Sea, which was effectively going to be a huge mirror with 30 degrees sun beating down us for probably 12 hours of paddling so we started to think about other options our original plan was to get there sleep on the beach for the night get up early the next morning and and jump on the water and and do the paddle as we drove we we threw out some ideas and one idea came up that we'd just get there and we'd just go so We'd paddle all night and get the ferry back the next morning. So basically just shifted our plan 12 hours forward so we could uh, avoid the sun and uh, hopefully get across. So what are the normal conditions on that crossing? So you're guaranteed to have tidal um, flow. So the the whole Irish Sea is flowing in and out of, I suppose, that area every six hours of course we picked a weekend or a, i think it was a weekend we picked a date anyways with neap tide so we were trying to get the least tidal flow so that our line wouldn't we wouldn't end up paddling too far because of the the tidal effect so you're going to have to allow the t- to move you but hopefully it's not going to add too much to your journey so um you could have you could have any sort of the 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 wind direction it would predominantly be southwesterly there so it would be a beam wind or a side on wind so it would be quite tricky to get a tailwind for that that actual crossing you'd need either a sort of northwesterly or a southeasterly to come from the other to reverse it so um actually getting getting just flat um there was i don't think there was any wind it was t-shirt weather um which was quite incredible for our listeners who might not uh, live in environments like myself, for example, I live in environments who are exposed to tides. Can you explain the difference between uh, neap tides? Okay, or so what a neap tide is. Uh, sure. Um, so we have spring tides, or in the states you might call them king tides, um, and then every two weeks. And well, the the opposite to them is the neap tide. So there's a less of a tidal range. So you don't have the moon and the sun working together to create the the big range. You have uh, they're sort of at ninety degrees rather than one hundred and eighty degrees. So you have less tidal movement. With that, you have less tidal stream. So there's less water having to to be pushed and pulled in and out of the Irish Sea. 
So on a on a for example on uh, say a neap tide you might have three knots a current at the maximum rate, whereas on a spring or king tide you might have six knots, and that is a significant difference when you're being pushed and pulled by it over a course of uh, 50, 60 miles. Certainly. So share some of those other tactics uh, that you mentioned earlier. You said you had some tactics yeah. that you wanted to share with the group. Well, these might be trade secrets, John. <laughs> uh, the, um, Only so, share yeah, what you feel appropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's all good. It's all out there for people to try. Um, I suppose from previous expeditions, I, um, in, I, I paddled around uh, Vancouver Island 2016 with friend of mine um, Joel Leach from the UK and I come from a lot of marathon racing and K, K boat racing, K1 and K2 and when you race K boats you or K1s you use each other's slipstream and you, you sit in a wash like you would well like cyclists would sit in each other's draft and there's a lot of advantage to be gained so it's no different when you're in fast sea kayaks to use the, the slipstream of each other so while it's nice to, to chat for a couple hours um, eventually we you get need to get down to the work and if you can save 10% by sitting behind one another and rest and alternate leads it's um, a very good way of I suppose preserving energy and, and keeping the pace as high as possible as possible so so for example on that crossing I, I was the sort of watch keeper and we what we did was we done we done twenty minute lead. No, sorry, we done ten minute leads. So um, I would lead for ten minutes, and Ali and Shane would sit directly behind me, one behind the other, and um, then we'd rotate every ten minutes. So there was a couple of advantages to it. One was that because there was only one person leading, only one person had to look at their compass, which is quite tiring. Because uh, we had very at times we had no visibility for a couple hours, and somebody had to take to follow a compass bearing. That was that was very advantageous having that somebody just one person looking and the other two people could sort of switch off behind and rest themselves and also you have um, there is I don't know what percentage I would say maybe 10 15 percentage of uh, I suppose advantage behind the behind one another so you can literally rest yourself as the other person does does slightly more work up front and the third thing was that psychologically it was quite nice because you knew you'd only to work for 20 minutes every hour and when you're paddling for 10 12 hours you want the hours to go past pretty pretty quickly so it was just a way of sort of breaking it into edible chunks and the hours just sort of pass by well we'll make sure we keep that trade secret between us and well, the rest <laughs> no. of the world <laughs> no problem <laughs> so what's your planning process for an extended crossing like that that was what 92k is that right yeah so as the crows as the crow flies it's about 85 kilometers dead straight line but with the with the tidal stream pushing us north and south we ended up paddling 92 kilometers so the planning i suppose is um sometimes you just uh, need to crack on and get on with these things so um luckily Ali is very good with navigation and tidal stream planning and stuff like that. But between the three of us, we, we sat down over dinner, actually, just before we jumped on the water, got out the tidal stream atlas and uh, worked out the vectors. And it turned out to be more or less uh, straight across on the on the bearing we had. So 
um, we we just follow one bearing for the crossing, and um, you allow the tide. You take that all into the the tidal stream into account, and when you work it back to that tidal that bearing, is um, if you stick to it, and your your calculations are correct, you will land bang on the on the spot, twelve hours later, and we did and but it's very tempting and uh, for example we were maybe only five kilom ten kilometers offshore and we were being pushed north with the the filling tide and it our our destination was to our sort of north or our left and it's very tempting to turn and go for it but if you do you're going to you're going to probably be swept past it so it's um you have to stick to the plan to the to the last minute and um, because if you try and cut cut a corner you will be punished severely, especially on on a crossing like that where there's there's a lot of tidal flow. So you changed that from a day trip to a night trip. So what's different other than it being dark? There's actually not a, a lot different. You're going to go on your bearing more. You're dependent on your visibility. One advantage we thought would we actually discovered is that you can see the lights of ships at night much easier than you can in the day, especially if it's a hot day, you get that sort of haze where it's quite difficult to tell distance so it was useful to be able to see the ships because quite a lot of shipping um going on but the only problem at night is your brain tries to fill the gaps so if you see a light for you might be able to see it for an hour your brain will constantly try and build a picture of what what's going on around it or what it is and there was one point during the night when i could see a light and we could all see it and for some reason i had this i'd read a blog about a different crossing and had confused it and i was I, I got it in my head that there was a light on a pole in the irish sea and i was going to tell to say to the lads i think this must be the light that i read about and and then it, i noticed that we were moving or it was moving or we were moving very fast and i was going wow the tide is going really really moving because it was coming across our path and then by the last minute, it was Shane who realized it was actually a yacht that was motoring with no one on deck. And it was its mast that we could see. And luckily, it didn't, um, luckily we didn't paddle in front of it uh, and get hit. So, um, yeah, your brain likes to play a lot of tricks and it can be a little bit exhausting that way. But that can happen even, even on a, a day crossing when you can see land in the distance and, and your brain tries to, to fill in the blanks. So do you find it more psychologically challenging when you can't see anything other than a few lights uh, versus a daytime paddle? I don't know if it's psychologically tra challenging, but I think you, you definitely paddle. It's harder to paddle fast at night. Um, I know that from, from expeditions that you can, you're, you will sort of paddle a little bit slower. On, you won't even know you're doing it, but you will do it. I, it was amazingly enjoyable. I'd never done a big crossing at night before and i suppose at that time of year in ireland it's what 26th of june we're just past the longest day of the year it was probably only dark for maybe a couple hours two three four hours so um you had sunrise at maybe 4 a.m it wasn't a lot of darkness we did have a, a a strange bank of cloud or fog i suppose that settled down for a couple hours that made visibility down to nothing but um other than that it was it was visibility was great and it was was a quite a magical night and i've actually said to the guys a couple of times since like we've talked about other crossings at night and i'm like we will never ever probably replicate that crossing like because it was actually in 
somewhat enjoyable for a crossing because it was such a magical night. We had like crazy sunset, the moon coming up, and we had dolphins and yeah, it was just a magical, magical night. Whereas crossings in general are, uh, I would say type two fun. Um, <laughs> they're, they're not enjoyable at the time. Um, they're the sort of thing you look back on and think that was cool, but it's definitely not, they're not that enjoyable at the time. So not the suffer fest that you'd normally have, but in this case, uh, just a, a magical surroundings. <laughs> Yeah, well, I suppose it depends your state of mind because um, Shane um, Shane ended up in quite a bad uh, situation because because we'd planned to say go on the 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 next day the next morning he had went in, in I don't know was it wise or not he had went training at half five that morning for running he was preparing for a running marathon race or something and uh, so he had no sleep. So we got on the water that evening at half eight in the evening and he'd already trained at 5.30 that morning. So he got himself, he, 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 he felt it. And by, I think, about 80 kilometers, I remember saying to him at 50 kilometers, we've only 30 kilometers to go because I felt great. And he, he was cursing, he was cursing under his <laughs> breath. So actually then myself and Ali were able to use that slipstream thing to, to protect him. So... We um we put him in behind us and and just let him sort of just turn over his paddles and keep paddling. He didn't have to th- so he didn't have to think, didn't have to follow the compass for a while, um and just could take as much rest as he could. So that was a good technique. And there was a stage where it crossed my mind that we might have to tow, but that would be an absolute last resort at that with them sort of distances. And I know he's a tough guy. He's done things like the marathon de Savile, so he got through. But by by about ten kilometers to go, there was a stage where his head was starting to sway and his eyes were going, but um, he got through it. Well, sounds like a great trip. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> so you also hold a personal record for crossing the Irish Sea. Um, is that correct? Yeah. So this year, two thousand and twenty June or sorry in August, the opportunity came for me to. Uh, to have a go at the North Channel crossing. So it's a much shorter crossing. It's only 35 kilometers straight line, but quite strong tidal flows up there because it's quite narrow. So the, the tide gets pushed quite a lot and you've half the Irish Sea emptying in through it. And uh, yeah, I, I've been watching it for a couple of years. I've, I've made the crossing a few times and a sort of a good time for the crossing will be around four hours. Uh, it's about four or five years ago since I'd done it last. And I, I think I was three hours 51. And I knew there was things I could improve on, um, especially with the tidal planning, that um, I, I could save a bit of time. And of course, I've learned a lot since then. I've probably my, my fitness has improved and I was paddling a different boat now, a Rockpool Taran, which um, is quite, a, quite an amazing kayak for, for these types of things. So I seen a weather window um, on, the, on the horizon watching the forecast. I'd, I'd usually keep an eye on it that part of the for that crossing just in case and it was giving um perfect wind direction i think it was about 15 knots forecast which was was ideal <clears throat> not super strong but enough to give you a good opportunity to surf some downwind r- running waves whereas you don't want too much wind on that crossing because you can you're going to get wind over tide which will cause a lot some big waves so yeah, the opportunity came in, I think it was August or September, 
maybe September this year. And I um, yeah jumped in the car early one morning, drove to Belfast or just outside Belfast, about a three-hour drive for me. I had to make some. I had to contact a few people to to pull off the logistics of it because it's it's obviously you're paddling one direction and you need to get home. Yeah, I got up there, got to the launch site in a place called Donaghadee in Northern Ireland, and uh, met a friend, paddling friend of mine up there. Had a chat to him, and you literally cannot waste a minute. If you you have to stick to the minute for the plan because it's a short crossing. So. I'd made that mistake in the past of talking too long at the start and um, been like 10 minutes late getting on and then you pay the price at the other end where you might get swept past your your landing spot. So yeah, I was uh, jumped on and I paddled the Rockpool Tower in 18 and I done the crossing in 3 hours and 11 minutes and I, the previous record was 325 I think. That's an impressive number. So you not only beat your time by forty minutes, but then uh, beat the record by another fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah, it was it was good. I it sort of I got on. I I started paddling. My heart rate was way too high, so I was I was I was trying to get it down, um, and I I just couldn't get it down. I think it was just the excitement of the prospect of of the conditions. Yeah, once I got out out, out into the into the open water, <clears throat> away from shore, the waves started to to build and. The Rockville Tower and just absolutely flew, and I just kept 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 the pace on as as much as I could. Had a couple of I think I had one or two ships cross my path where it's a gamble between will I will I get ahead of them if I go or should I wait? And the the safest option is always to go behind them because it's very difficult to know exactly where they're going and how fast they are. So I had to to hold back a little bit, but you're talking only second maybe seconds. Yeah, get into the far side. Then you're you're starting to look. You're you're constantly calculating the time or your projected time in your head and your average speeds. So getting to the far side, it's hard to tell exactly how far from shore you are because you can't be certain how far the tide has pushed you around. I suppose you start to rash trying to come up with all the times and different times that you might get actually get there. So when you uh, finally reach shore and it's uh it's a good time. So yeah, I, w- I was would have been uh, halfway across. I was projecting like maybe three fifteen. So to to do three eleven was really good. Well, congratulations. Thank so you I, very much. Yeah, I know your record uh, stands <clears throat> out there at, at performancecayaking.co.uk. So I'll make sure I put a link out there for that, and folks can see that time as well as see uh, some of the other accomplishments that you've had. So, what other recommendations can you offer to other endurance paddlers? It's uh, if that type of this type of sea kayaking is quite I suppose it's a, maybe an acquired taste or it mightn't be everyone's cup of tea. But for me, coming from I suppose I do quite a lot of racing and I have quite a, a fairly high standard of whitewater kayaking skills from a few years ago. I like this type of thing of of I suppose going a lot solo or maybe in a small team and doing um big mileage and fast crossings or or circumnavigations and things so yeah the, the the key to it it really is just to build up your your endurance over over a couple of years it's very hard you can't go out well you can go out and do some of these things off off the bat but if you want to do a thing like an expedition where you want to paddle 60 70 80 kilometers every day for day on days on back to back um it's quite hard on the body and psychologically it's quite challenging so for me, over the last few years, I've done a lot of work and a lot of reading on psychology, sports psychology, um, and how do you how do you manage the mind when when you want to give up and things like that. 
I've learned a lot about food and nutrition and its importance from and all these things come from expeditions or outings where where things have gone wrong so for example when we done Vancouver Island myself and Joe both lost 10% of our body weight in two weeks which was a phenomenal amount of weight to lose and that was purely down to lack of eating a, a big enough lunch that con- the consequence of that wasn't just weight loss it was actually psychological became a psychological thing and we didn't know it was only in hindsight that you realize that because you're hungry your brain then says I don't want to do this or why am I doing this so a couple of years later when I was going around Ireland I ate and I ate a huge like I was never hungry and I never had any time when I thought why am I doing this or because you fear that time when you doubt yourself or you start questioning yourself you you because it's very hard to get through yeah luckily it didn't come and I put that down to eating a lot and being fit yeah I, I train quite a bit um a few years ago I used to train maybe I used to train a lot I used to train a lot of volume so I would do maybe 15 hours a week or even 20 hours if it was a big period like a big training block but in the last couple of years I go for quality over quantity so um, now I probably do maybe 12 hours training a week a lot of interval training and then if I was preparing for a big crossing or something like that I would do a big paddle maybe two big paddles before that so maybe a 30 kilometer paddle and then a 50 kilometer paddle and it just reminds the body that what it needs to do so um i think once you've done it a few times you can you can just remind the body what what's going to come and and you can deal with it then but you will have to go and scrape the barrel a few times to to build that up yeah certainly your brain will take you out of the game a lot faster than your body will your body will keep going but uh your mind will play tricks on you like you said absolutely and uh, there's something i i remember reading before i went around ireland and it was um I can't remember the name of the book, but the the theory was anyways that you cannot physically reach your maximum capacity or your muscles will never, your brain will never allow your muscles to reach their maximum capacity. So, and that goes back to because if that lion that was chasing you kept popped up again or another lion chase decided to chase you, you always need a reserve. So for us reached our absolute fatigue is impossible. So that was something I used to remind myself in days when I'd be tired is that you're not, you're not really tired. There's always more, you know, so little things like that. Any uh, particular mental state resources that, uh, that you have that you want to share with listeners? No, but there's something, I suppose there's quite a good book. I, I came across a few years ago called the chimp paradox and, and um, people can look it up and, and find out about it. And it's, um, Something I took from it was um, how we have to negotiate with our chimps or uh, without getting into the detail of the book, it's uh, basically that we have three three brains, our, our chimp brain, our human brain and our, our computer brain. And anyways, the chimp is what really runs our lives a lot of the time and is our instinct and is a very powerful drive. Anyways, so for example, if I was to say to myself, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and paddle 80 kilometers, I might say that to myself the night before, but come tomorrow morning, the likelihood is... The chimp is going to say, oh, I don't feel like doing 80 kilometers. That's crazy. Well, I'm not getting out of bed. So I would rarely get up with a, with 
with a specific target in mind i would usually just say to myself i'll do 20 kilometers i'll have and i'll have cups or i'll have breakfast or i'll do 40 kilometers and i'll have breakfast and then when you do that then you do another 20 and then you do another 20 and next thing you have 80 kilometer day done so it's just about i suppose making it manageable and even even the irish sea crossing with ali and shane i suppose the advantage we wouldn't have it was probably as well to go that night because there was no way we would have slept knowing we had to get up and paddle 90 kilometers the next day so sometimes you just have to try not to think about it too much and uh break it into into small sizes for me anyways i'm i wouldn't be a person who can even if i was going for a run or a cycle i'd 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 have to tell myself i'm doing half the distance and when i've half it done i can keep going yeah the other half is back home right Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Chimp Paradox, I will make sure I get a link to that uh, and put that in the show notes so folks can check that out as well. So what's your paddling passion these days? Yeah, so the last, I suppose, year, maybe two years, I've been doing a lot of wave ski surfing. So a couple of years ago, I, I, I sort of looked around where I live in the west of Ireland. Like, I, obviously, I'm very passionate about paddling K1s and doing races like that but where i live we've actually some beautiful waterways and stuff but we're very exposed exposed to the north atlantic we got a lot of wind and we um we have sort of not ideal conditions for nice we don't we don't have lovely flat water conditions all the time so a couple of years ago i just i started sort of looking at what we do have and what i could start harnessing so i got into i decided i'd learned kite surf I kite surfed for the last couple of years, um, which was really, really enjoyable. Just getting into uh, being a beginner in something again, really fascinating. I learned to sub surf, and then the last couple of years I've been doing a lot of wave ski surfing, as I was saying. So we live, I live quite close to some really good breaks, like surf breaks. Wave ski is quite a fringe, fr- very fringe sport actually. It was big in the eighties, I believe. There is a small but very like talented bunch of guys around the world especially the top handful of guys can do incredible aerials and stuff on these on these little and they're like little surfboards that um you sit on but they're obviously have can float you so they're uh, sort of a hybrid between a surfboard a surfboard and a kayak it's uh quite challenging i remember getting the first day i picked up the my first first wave ski which is quite an advanced one but i i brought it to the beach and i spent 20 minutes trying to sit on it and at one stage i, I sort of looked around and said somebody's somebody's going to come over and ask me if i know what i if i know what i'm doing because <laughs> i was struggling big time so anyways i i stuck at it and like any and i've learned this from other sports or even kayaking don't do it all the one day so it, 20 minutes a day but do it every day if you can and you'll get better fast because your, your muscle memory will build faster i stuck at it and stuck at it and luckily i've progressed quite a bit yeah it's quite it's enjoyable and i suppose that's one thing i love about kayaking or, or paddle sports in general is that we have such an amount of disciplines to tap into so if you start getting feeling like you're plateauing in one there's plenty more to challenge you and you you can literally be a beginner for life i think yeah, well, you've certainly become a man of all disciplines. So that's that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's um, it's quite enjoyable. So, what are some of the essential pieces of kit that David Horkin relies on, and why? Oh, good, good question. Yeah, um, as I mentioned earlier, I paddle a, a rock pool kayak. Um, I paddle both the Taran eighteen, and this year I've started paddling the sixteen foot kayak. 
Um, that that's really interesting kayak and um, a bit shorter than most people would expect for a fast fast boat but it's um it is fast and it, i think it's very capable and i i think i will probably use it for some bigger stuff maybe maybe in the f near future my paddles i use wing i use winged paddles when i'm paddling um distance then uh, i suppose paddling my the 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 apparel I wear, um, luckily I'm quite well, I'm sponsored by Kokotat uh, for the last couple of years and they make the best dry suits there is and make some fantastic cags and salopettes and stuff like that. So I've used their suits, different suits for different for different expeditions and crossings and Craft Sportswear also are a, a sponsor and I've been using their thermals for quite a few years. And yeah, like good gear is, is, is very important and testing it out is super important so I, I like to um, put it through its paces and make sure that it's it's not going to chaff or whatever and sometimes you only find that these things out after a very extended period but in general um, yeah the gear that's out there now is phenomenal having been to some some of the colder regions of the world I do look back and wonder how the first explorers went to these places with the equipment they had it was quite incredible well, you've had the chance to paddle all over the world and, and lots of different situations and everything from short paddles to, you know, 92K crossings. So that's uh, those are great environments to be able to test that gear out. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the one place in the world that you would like to paddle but haven't paddled yet? Well, uh, good question. I, I was looking at a list I, I made, I think, a year ago of places that I, I wanted to get to in the next few years. And luckily, I was just in one of them quite recently I was in South Africa paddling I was over there for a few weeks and I, I was back uh, doing some surf ski paddling so surf ski is sort of open top long racing kayaks which are made for downwind paddling and anyone that's into it will know South Africa is a mecca for downwind paddling some of the best and for kayaking and kayak racing in general they are probably one of the strongest nations in the world they have huge paddling community over there they have consistent sort of trade winds that um, we don't get in Ireland and the UK anyways. Probably Spain would be the closest. But there's a famous paddle route over there called Miller's Run, which is just outside Cape Town. It was a real joy to get, a, to get there and jump on a, a surf ski and paddle Miller's Run a few times. So I done some training when I was over there with the locals and uh, yeah, it was super. There's, there is a few more places. I, I would quite like to get to Greenland. I, I heard Jeff talking about his um, Greenland plans for coming up. And he, I, I know I talked to Paul Caffin a few years ago and he said Eastern Greenland was probably one of the best places in the world he'd he'd ever been. And um, he has paddled bit more or less everywhere. Yeah, uh, the Arctic would be quite nice. Newfoundland uh, is on the list. Uh, Norway, I haven't been to Norway yet, so quite keen to get there and um, and also possibly, I'd like to go east, and there's there's some plans for maybe a trip to Japan in the not too distant future, hopefully. Ah, wonderful environments. So yeah. So David, how can people reach you if they have additional questions? So yeah, you can um, find me on um, on Facebook, David Horkin. You you can just drop me a message there on my personal page, or on Instagram, I go under the name DHK Ireland. Or just Google David Horkin or DH Kayaking and um, you should be able to, to track me down. Reach out with any questions or if, if you're looking for advice, feel free to give me a shout.
All right, will do. I'll make sure I get links to those uh, contact points in the in the show notes as well. So, David, one final question. It's the question I like to ask all of our guests at the end here, and uh, that question is, David, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? So, yeah, I, I, I think um, Joe Leach would be a fantastic guy to have on. Joe has done some incredible expeditions in the past, and one particularly big one that he'd done a few years ago, um, and it's quite an interesting story to hear about it. All right. Well, I will make sure that I connect with Joe. I know he was uh, your partner on the Vancouver Island trip, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, All right. It was a real joy for me to to pad, to to, to um, team up with him back in 2016, and to train together for that expedition was super. So um, you'll have good insight from from Joe about his his exploits. Excellent. Well, I will. Uh, Get the contact information for Joe from you and uh, make the connection. So, David, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. It's been great learning about um, your your travels around Ireland and your crossings and your record-setting crossing of the North Channel. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Sean. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. I've been to Ireland twice, and both times, seeing the Skelligs from the mainland, they've captured my attention. And uh, David wrote a short story about the Skellig trip that was posted to the Kokotat website. I'll make sure I post a link to that in the show notes so you can see the pictures as well as uh, read his story. David's got his hand in quite a few disciplines, and each one helps him hone his craft in the others. So check out the show notes for the links to the resources David mentioned in his, uh, in his interview. So for our next show, we're going to make our own crossing of the Irish Sea to the paddling playground that is Anglesey. And we're going to continue the speed theme where we're going to talk with John Willisey about going around islands or across water really quickly. And John shares his motivations as a fast sea kayaker, and you may be surprised to hear that it's not really about the speed. So thanks again for listening, and as always, I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.